Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you for the means of grace. And Lord, we do pray as we look at these things concerning depravity that you would impress upon us that salvation is only of you, that you're the only one that can overcome a hard heart and give people faith in your Son for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of uh, a message that we're in, we've entitled, Are You a Calvinist? And the whole point of this message is to show where we agreed with Calvin and where we differed. We had spent a lot of time showing where we differed with Calvin. Now we're talking about where we agree with him, which is primarily in the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. How is a sinner justified and made righteous before God? And one thing that the Reformed were particularly strong on was the doctrine of predestination and election. And so we've been showing where we agree there. And one of the claims that I made is I think in order to understand the doctrine of election, it's important to understand total depravity. If it's true that human beings are so sinful that none of us in and of ourselves could ever trust in Jesus Christ, it shows us that the only way anyone could be saved is through God's regenerative power. Election must be true, therefore. Okay, so here's the way I look at it. Human beings are so sinful that left to our own devices, none would be saved. But we know from Scripture, some are saved. So if some are saved, well, therefore, God must be the one who regenerates, and therefore, he must choose who he regenerates. So that's the importance, I think, of understanding total depravity. Election will never make sense unless you know depravity. Now, last time I gave you a reading assignment, which was out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And uh, as I looked at the passage, I realized I should have had you read more uh, of chapter 3 as well because of the context. But I want to begin by asking, does anyone have any insights or anything that they wanted to convey? The specific thing I'm interested in is who is it that hardened or blinded the minds of the unbeliever? It was Satan, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the God of this age. Now, I want to begin, actually, because I felt bad. I should have given you more context. Let's turn our Bibles, in fact, to 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, and we'll read a little bit, and then I'll open it for more conversation and comments. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Now, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with super apostles who are denigrating his apostleship. And remember, much of the Corinthian congregation tried to deny that Paul was legitimate. And so one of the things Paul's going to do here is he's going to show, look, if Moses should not be disparaged, because after all, he was the mediator of the old covenant that had a fading glory, certainly Paul, who is the mediator of a better covenant that has greater glory, should be listened to. But he's going to interject how the blindness of man blinded them not only to Moses' covenant, but also the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18, Paul's giving exposition here on Exodus 34. He says, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Now, stop there for a moment. What does Paul mean by this ministry of death? 
Well, you know what he's referring to? He's referring to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, does that mean that the Mosaic Covenant was somehow deficient or sinful? No. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 7 that the Mosaic Covenant was holy, righteous, and good. The problem was when the, new, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was intermingled with our sinful nature, it didn't produce righteousness, it produced sin and death. So that's the problem. The problem is us. So that's how the Old Covenant was a ministry of death. Notice it's also said that it was letters engraved on stones. That's because Paul wants to juxtapose that with the letter written on our heart by the Spirit. That's what he's doing. So verse 8, he says, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? He's talking about the New Covenant. Verse 9, he says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. So stop there. He's making a comparison. The Mosaic Covenant was glorious, but compared to the New Covenant, it's as if it had no glory at all. In verse 11, he says, For if what which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So that's the New Covenant. It will always be glorious. It's the eternal covenant. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Now notice there in verse 13, he's talking about this veil that was put over Moses' face. So if you remember in Exodus 34, when Moses would meet with God, his face would shine from the Shekinah glory of God. And because the hardness of the Israelites' heart, not only could they not be in the presence of God, but the very glory that emanated from Moses' face was too much for them. So in one sense, the veil that Moses put on was a sign of the hardness of the Israelites' heart. Why? Because so hardened were they, they couldn't even see the reflected glory off of Moses' face. But it was also merciful. So yes, it's a sign of their hard heart, but it was a form of mercy because if Moses had shown them truly who God was, they couldn't stand because of their sinfulness. So we have to see it as a a both and. Now, one interesting thing is, notice he says, they could not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Notice the term end there, it's telos. I remember Bob teaching this some years ago. He taught through 2 Corinthians right here. And the idea of here, telos, um, how many in here have ever heard of the teleological argument? Some of you have heard of that. I know Bob obviously has. The teleological argument is an argument of design. Because the universe seems to be designed, it, predis- it presupposes there must be a designer. Does that make sense? That's the teleological argument. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you have plosives. Oh, oh not plosives. <laughs> oh, I'm doing it again. It's worse. Okay, then we'll go down. We'll go down. Try, try looking at your computer and say something like... Say something intelligent? P. Pop- popcorn. popcorn. 
There we go, down. All right, okay, very good. We can't have plosives. Thank you, Bob. All right, I'll edit out what we just did. All right, thank you. So the, the term teleological comes from telos. So it can mean end or as in termination, but it also can mean a goal or a design. In this case, I think we should be rendering it consequence. So the way I would render it is that Israel could not look intently at the consequence of what was fading away. So there is a consequence of the Mosaic Covenant and the glory of it left with human sinful nature, human beings would perish. So the consequence of the Mosaic Covenant was what? It was death. That's what it brought. So notice what he says. He says, For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. So notice there that the veil remains unlifted. So as the Israelites, to the very day that Paul was writing 2 Corinthians, when they would read the Old Covenant, it remained veiled. So now he's making a play on words. It was veiled to them. In other words, they couldn't see the truth. Why? Because they're in the unregenerate state. The Old Covenant is dominated by sinful humanity. It was the New Covenant that would be dominated by the sending of the Spirit where God would overcome the hardness of heart, enabling people to believe. So Paul's arguing to the very day that the Israelites read the Old Covenant, it didn't do them a lick of good. Why? Because of their hardness of heart, there was a veil over it. Verse 15, he says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's conversion. Conversion can be rightly said, the taking away of the veil, so that people can see the truth of who Christ is. Now notice who's responsible. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, or literally freedom. Stop there. Now he's juxtaposing the Old Covenant with the New. What made up the difference between the Old Covenant and the New was not that you and I became better people in and of ourselves, but it was the power of the Spirit that did it. The Holy Spirit enabled people to believe what God had written. Verse 18, but we all, he's talking about believers of the new covenant, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Verse 18, very important to our understanding of 2 Corinthians 4. Notice he says, with an unveiled face. Believers, we don't have a veil over us. Notice he says, we behold as a mirror, in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, why does Paul say we behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror? Well, the idea is that even though you and I know the truth, we're still looking at it indirectly. We're looking at the glory of Jesus Christ in a mediated way through the word of God. And so when he talks about it's, we're going to be transformed into the image from glory to glory, think about this. In the eschatological age, we will see Christ as he is. We will see God as he is. But now we see the glory as if through a mirror. Yeah, Brian. 
Uh, in the reading assignment from chapter 4, in verse 4, then it's, it, it's saying uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So once again, we see numerous times where God has blinded people uh, uh, to the truth. And that falls back into our last couple slides of the doctrine of election. Well said. And so that's, thank you for the segue. When we come into 2 Corinthians 4, all of this is the backdrop to it, what we saw in 2 Corinthians 3. So now Paul is making the point, even in this dispensation, even under the new covenant, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the truth of the gospel. Now, one of the things we have to define, I think, in fact, will you read, Brian, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4? And stop at veiled for just a moment. And even if our God is veiled. Gospel, yep. It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Thank you. So notice, what, what is Paul doing with the term veiled? He's, he's playing off of, in the old covenant, there was a veil because of the hardness of the human heart. Now under the new covenant, Paul says, look, the unbelievers, they have a veil too. But their veil is put on them by the God of this world. Now literally, the term world there is aeon, which in Greek means age. So the question we have to wrestle with if we're going to interpret this is, who is the God of this age? Most of your versions, if you look in your Bible, it'll be a G with a small g, right? Well, I think the inference is correct from our English versions. It's Satan. Satan is the God of this age. Not that he has ultimate dominion. Of course, the Lord does. But even Jesus, remember, we have in John chapter 12 and John chapter 14, Jesus himself says that Satan is what? The ruler of this age. All right? I think about in 1 John 5, 19, John says that the whole world lies in the power of whom? The evil one, right? So when you repent and come to Christ, you're leaving the domain of darkness, as Bob says, especially remember in Acts 26, leaving the domain of darkness to what? The domain of light, going from Satan's domain to to the domain of Christ. So the one who is blinding the minds of the unbelieving is Satan, Now, obviously, God is sovereign over that. He's allowing it. Think of the book of Job. Could Satan do anything to Job unless God allowed it? No. So God is sovereign over that. Nonetheless, the unregenerate mind left to their own devices follows the schemes of the enemy, the devil, and the unbelieving world loves it. So I want you to take note here where it says that he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Again, the mind is the intellectual faculty. They are blinded. They cannot perceive the beauty of the gospel. But this raises the question, when it says that the minds of the unbelievers are blinded, is it because God is like he's speaking Chinese and you and I only understand English? Is that the type of blindness? That when the 
unregenerate reads the Bible, they just can't understand a lick of it? Or is it more a moral hardness? And what Bob and I believe is it's the latter. So that's what I want to turn to. I want to start, oh, before I do that, let me contrast these two ages. Let me put up 2 Corinthians 4.4. I just want you to help understand what it means that Satan is the God of this age. Notice 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul said, in whose case the God of this world, or this age, literally, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Look at our diagram here. Sometimes it's helpful to think of it in a diagram. The old age is dominated by unbelief, sin, death. People are naturally part of that when they're born into this world. And the Mosaic Covenant was impotent to remedy that problem. Why? Because the Mosaic Covenant was used by God to show that human beings apart from the Spirit can do nothing pleasing to God. Okay, so the New Age, notice the blue line here. The inauguration of it was the first advent of Christ. Jesus Christ comes and pays the penalty of sin. He lives the perfect life that no human being could so that by trust in him, we can have righteousness. But Jesus Christ also sends the Spirit. He is the dispenser of the Spirit. And so as the Spirit comes... He enables people to believe in the gospel to overcome the veiled or hard heart. And so what's unique about the new covenant, the sine qua non, as the old saying goes, the primary or essential ingredient is the sending of the spirit. That's the inbreaking of the age to come. So think about it. You and I are living, notice now. We're living where the old age is still hanging on but we have our partaking of the age to come. So think about between these two lines, the first advent of Christ inaugurates the age to come, dominated by belief, righteousness, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life security. But that age won't be consummated until the second advent. So you and I are living in the now, and it's in this now that the reprobate have their minds blinded by the God of this age and they're part of the old age. But believers, they're living now and they have their hearts regenerated by the Spirit. They belong to the age to come. That's the messiness of the age that we live in now. It's a blending of the two ages. The new age has broken in, but the old age of sin, death, and hell is still hanging on. Yes, Ryan. So just a, a question with the old age. We know that some people like Abraham did see the day of the Lord you know, yeah. as coming. So maybe you can comment on some of that. With We know that some people in the old age still saw and believed. Absolutely. <clears throat> so you're right, Ryan. Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. Genesis fifteen six. Certainly, people did come to faith in God, his promises, and the future coming of the Messiah. And that certainly we have to affirm was something that was made possible by the Spirit. The great promise that we see, for example, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, is that no longer is that going to be just the minor, minority report and just among the Jews, 
but it's something that's going to be far greater. And that's why he says, I'm going to make a covenant that's not like the old covenant. It's going to be something new. Um, Think about when, do you remember when Joshua is angry because there are people who are prophesying when the Spirit came upon them? You read about this in Numbers. And Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? And he says, oh, that all of God's people would prophesy. Meaning all of them would know the truth, that the Spirit would come upon them all. That is fulfilled at the day of Pentecost. At the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ after his ascension in heaven. And you see this fulfillment. That now that the Spirit has come on a grand scale, there are going to be Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in God and his promises, the Messiah. And they're going to be partakers of Messianic salvation. So we have to affirm that, yes, Abraham came to faith and there was others like David, etc. And that had to be by the Spirit as well. But the outpouring of the Spirit under the new covenant is going to be on a far grander scale. So it's one of scale, and it's one in which you have a Gentile inclusion rather than just primarily being a Jewish issue. Yes, Bob? Yeah, to integrate with that, that with what we're learning in Ephesians. Yes. It says that this before wasn't made known to the sons of men, but now has been made known by his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Amen. So the idea that the church would be one new man yes. comprised of redeemed Jews and Gentiles is a new covenant revelation, according to Paul. Amen. It's a big deal. And when you go back, looking back, knowing that, yeah. you see it. Yep. Okay. And Paul uses scriptures from the Old Testament right. to prove this. Yeah. But the full understanding of the existence, the nature, the, the components, the message, everything about the church... Yes. Was a mystery, not in a sense that it was discovered by some occultist that learns mysteries, but it would be unknown had God not chosen to reveal it. Amen. And so now it's known. It's now real, realized. It's now revealed. And it's now public knowledge for all. And anyone can study and see that it's true. Amen. And so we are lived, living in a very privileged era despite all the troubles and sorrows that we face, because we can know the things of the Spirit and know God under the new covenant and be part of his eternal purpose and eternal plan. So what a great benefit we have. It is, absolutely. You know, Bob was just mentioning that this is a mystery that's been revealed, this Gentile inclusion, the breaking down of the barrier which was the Mosaic Law, Ephesians 2.15, that made a separation of Jew and Gentile. It was a mystery that God would put them together and make one new man. But as Bob was saying, it wasn't that it's not in the Old Testament. It just wasn't explicitly clear. For example, uh, I'll I'll just say that you can just jot this down. Isaiah 49.6, here's the suffering servant. And God says, it is too small a thing that you should be a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But that wasn't made explicit as to how would that happen? Well, all of a sudden, Messiah breaks on the scene of history and his New Testament apostles and prophets make it very clear. 
So that's exactly what Bob is driving at. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and also the way they would see it when they look back. Yeah. Was it mean subjugate the nations? Oh, exactly right. Right. They're going to conquer. Defeat them and show, you know, that we have the true God and you're subjugated to us. Which, by the way, will happen at the end of the yeah. day of the 70th week. Right, right, that's right. But uh, what wasn't known is, and what offended them on the senior history is when Jesus comes and starts healing and forgiving the sins of Gentiles, like uh, the, the demoniac. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, and so then they're in, in sinners and the kind of people they despise. Right. So then there's this conflict. And then when, after Pentecost, we have the whole thing going on leading up to Acts 21 where there's a showdown whether the church is going to be headquartered in Jerusalem and be Jewish and following the law or whether it's going to really be the one new man. Right. And that was, that's the drama of Acts, which I think a lot of people miss. Yeah, yeah. And the destruction of the temple didn't bring in the millennium. But it made it clear that the headquarters wasn't going to be Jerusalem right. until the millennium. Yeah. And so now you have the one new man. So there is something new. But when they look back at it, the only thing they could see was defeat the Gentiles. Yeah. But then when the de- Gentiles defeated them in 70 AD, that was significant. We, were, you know, we debate that with the millennials. Right, right. It's significant, but not in the way they think. Exactly, that's right. Because it wasn't the end of the promise. It was the yeah. continuation of what's going to have, the church age is going to be about. Amen, well said. So, uh, dear ones, let me conclude with this. I want to show you, and I hope I've showed you over the last few weeks, that the mind of human beings, unaided by the Spirit, is blind. And it cannot perceive the truth of the gospel. It does not love the gospel. It cannot believe in the gospel. That's one of the things that I've shown. So what I want to do is just begin by asking the question, are spiritually dead sinners able to believe in Christ unaided by God? I think the answer, as we've seen, is no. It's simply not possible. Now, I'm going to show you more evidence of this. But what I want to do is turn to ask the question, when we talk about being spiritually dead, what exactly does it involve? Certainly it involves the mind. And we've looked at that, but there's been three different ways that people have looked at spiritual death and the blindness that it puts upon humanity. Some, like Pelagius, would say it's just separation from God. It's just separation. We don't have any moral guilt, and we don't have any moral inability. What I would say is that's obviously false. But we'll we'll ask the question, is it just separation? Some think it's moral inability. That's what I think it is that yes, human beings unaided by the Spirit are morally opposed to God. But how about natural inability? Yes, sin has affected our minds. We've certainly seen evidence of that. So let's wrestle with it. In what way are our minds depraved? That's what we want to look at. So I want to give you some evidence of all three of these, and we'll wrestle with this further. First of all, let's look at the idea of separation. First and foremost, sin separates us from God. And think of the analogy right away we saw that in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't immediately physically die, but God did separate them very quickly out of his midst. They were kicked out of the garden, weren't they? Right? Remember Cain, the same thing. So there's a separation from God. And we see that in, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59, 1 through 4. 
By the way, this is a great passage to keep in your back pocket, have it memorized, because you can use it when you're giving the gospel. What has sin done? It separates you from God. And that's oftentimes called the first death. Yes, Paul. Uh, I agree with everything you've said, especially the answer. But actually, I want to question the question you've got up there. It says, uh, are spiritually dead sinners able to believe in Christ unaided by God? Well, I, you could use by that word. Is that all we need is aid? Uh, that would be Arminianism, I believe. Or, sure. Yeah. No, you're, right. you're right. well said. It, it should be regenerated. I couldn't fit that on there, but I hope that's implied by the rest of everything that's said. But good, good take. Yeah, very good. We have to be regenerated. It's not just a little bit of help. We have to have a complete heart transplant. And that's what I mean. That's the kind of aid I'm talking about. But good, good point. And that should be reflected. If anyone wants to take notes there, we have to be regenerated. We have to have a heart transplant. We were dead. So good catch, Paul. Thank you for, for qualifying and clarifying. Excellent. Um, Isaiah 59, 1 through 4, Isaiah says this. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Notice the problem, verse 2. He says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So stop there. Notice the term separation. That's death. And that's what sin does. And that's why, when, remember we were reading Romans 5, and I made the case that in Romans 5, 12, all of us sinned because we were spiritually dead in Adam. What does that mean? We're spiritually separated from God. That's the problem that every sinner has. And so here, the Israelites are just reflecting in real time in a nation that was governed by God. God governed them. You say, well, who's your president? God. How are you faring terribly? Why? Well, it isn't his fault. It was them. By the way, I love it. God had a flat tax. Isn't that great? 10%. I love it when people say the flat tax is immoral. Was God immoral? God had one. The problem wasn't God, it's us. And the Israelites, the chosen people, the people of the promises, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, given the greatest revelation ever given, they couldn't produce righteousness. Why? Because their iniquities caused a separation. So let me stop there. Do you know what the remedy is to all of this? It comes in Isaiah 59.20. Fast forward. I want to show you the remedy. Isaiah 59.20. What can remedy this separation? Isaiah 59.20. It says a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares Yahweh. Notice that phrase, a redeemer will come to Zion. How many here remember that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what are they crying out? Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Isaiah 59, 20, in my opinion, is built off of the great psalm, the Hallel psalm, the praise psalm, Psalm 118. Remember in Psalm 118, it says, blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of Yahweh. And that became a messianic reference well, here you see that it's extended 300 years after that psalm was written, there's still one who's coming to Zion. That's the expectation. That's what's going to remedy the separation of sin. It's the coming Redeemer, the great Goel, the Redeemer who purchases back through his own blood that which is lost. The Messiah is all over the place in the Scriptures. 
and it is the only remedy to sin. So here's my point in all of this. I want to show you that, number one, Pelagius is right in this. We all agree, whether you're Pelagian, whether you're a Federalist, whatever your view is on original sin, yes, sin causes separation from God. Now, he just left it there. That was all, just sin separation. There's no moral guilt, no moral inability. But yes, it's separation. Now, let's talk about the distinction between moral inability and natural inability. Again, natural inability would be as if God is giving the gospel and it's in some alien language. Again, use the, the Chinese. Have you ever looked at Chinese? If you don't know Chinese, it looks very formidable. I can't understand a lick of it. That, so the idea of natural inability is as if God is preaching to us in Chinese and all we as sinners understand English. We just can't perceive it. We can't understand it. Now, let me give you a passage that seems to allude to that, but I think it needs to be qualified. One passage people will use, like Charles Hodge, who believes in natural inability, is 1 Corinthians 2.14. So turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And let's wrestle with this natural inability. Now, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 2.14, I don't want you to misunderstand what Bob and I are claiming we will say that, yes, sin affects every aspect of who we are. That's what total depravity means. That our sin nature from Adam affects every aspect. It affects our physical being. It affects our minds so we don't reason as accurately as we should. But what we're going to show, the primary problem isn't the ability to reason, but it's a moral inability. It's a hatred of the gospel. But notice here, we have to wrestle with 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Now stop there. The, fir- the term foolishness, morino, it's where we get our term moron. It's moronic. The unregenerate thinks the gospel is moronic. In fact, it says he cannot understand them. The term there in Greek, gnosko, is the term for knowledge. They can't know them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, I will affirm at the cursory reading of this, it seems to say, yes, there's natural inability. They can't even understand them. The, the, the unregenerate, because their mind is so affected by sin, they can't even understand the gospel. But it still begs the question, why can't they understand it? Is it again because God is asking them to do something impossible? because he's speaking Chinese and they only understand English, this text does not answer that. But there is a text that does tell us very clearly that when God asks dead sinners to believe the gospel, he is not asking them to do something which is naturally impossible, as if we don't have the mental faculty to do it. And I'm going to show you that passage. This is one you want to keep in your notes. This is one you want to keep in your mind because this is going to help you. If you can make the distinction between moral and natural inability, it's going to help you in your own mind and with others deal with the question of fairness. If it's true that human beings naturally have the ability to believe the gospel, God is speaking English, I speak English, I can understand it. But my real problem is moral inability. I don't like it. You can see all of a sudden, wait a minute. My hardness of heart and my rejection of the gospel is my culpability. It certainly isn't God's.
This helps address the fairness issue. So turn your Bibles to Romans 10, 6 through 7. This is something years ago, I always look at Bob as helping me finish my uh, studies in seminary. I went to a heretical school, so I did, half my time I was fighting to prove that truth could be known. And this is a passage that Bob pointed to me in 2007, I think it was, way back then, as he helped me make the distinction between moral and natural inability, and I was very grateful for it. I think he's spot on. Romans 10, 6 through 7. Listen to what Paul says here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Romans 10, 6 through 7. Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now, let me just stop here. Paul's going to be citing from Deuteronomy, and he's going to make an application that in Deuteronomy... Well, I'll explain the application in a moment, but that's what he's appealing to. Deuteronomy, I believe, was it 32, if I remember? Here's what he says. He says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But, notice in verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now stop there. Does anyone have a textual note which shows where in Deuteronomy that's from? Is it? 30, I'm sorry. 30, 14. Okay, so it's Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14. So in the original context in Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 through 14, what Moses was saying is God has not asked you to ascend into the heavens to bring, I think, the law down, nor has he asked you to descend down to Sheol to bring it up. In other words, God wasn't asking you to do something physically impossible, but simply to do what? Believe the words that are preached. Now, Paul changes it, and he says, God hasn't asked you, remember, he's substituting Christ for the law. He hasn't asked you to go into the heavens to bring Christ down. That would be impossible. Has he asked you to do something that's impossible? If you ask me to bench press a thousand pounds, I can't do it. I wish I could. Probably, probably have a, a stint on the road and at a circus show at least make some money. I can't do it. It's impossible. But God hasn't asked us to do the impossible. That's the point, but simply believe the word that was with them. The same thing was in Moses' day is in our day. God isn't asking human beings to do that which is naturally impossible, but simply believe the word preached. So right there, that passage, in my opinion, rules out natural inability. That God has, yes. I'm sorry, we'll go to Bob and then we'll go to Eric. Okay, let me, uh, yeah, this was, so great for me when I, in the 80s, I yes. saw this. Yeah, with it, Jonathan Edwards has a great work on this, on his, in his book about the bondage of, no, the freedom of the will is what his book's yeah. called. But when he was writing, they had a whole paragraph or a title. Yeah. It wasn't a good period of American literature. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, Edwards' work was fantastic on this. But I, I, I was thinking of that. Today I'm preaching on Cain and Abel because I need to do a sermon that didn't get recorded when I did it a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so we have it. Now, the violent reaction against the gospel 
doesn't happen because people don't understand it, okay? As a matter of fact, the more clear it is, the more hatred people have for it. And if you want evidence as a review, because I was teaching through Acts, go to Stephen's martyrdom. The martyrdom happened precisely because they did understand what he was saying. Right. He was powerful, he was biblical, he was clear, and he laid it out exactly what happened and what the, who Christ was and what they needed. And, it, and they became so enraged, they, they killed Stephen. Wow. Now, a little preview for the sermon, in the case of Cain, it wasn't hard. If you do well, you know, in other words, what God was requiring wasn't that hard. Cain was irate that God determined how people come to him. Right. And, and dear saints, know this. The thing that the world hates us about, if you boil it down to its essence, is that God determines how we come to him. And what he's determined is public knowledge. It's got evidence for it. It's public truth. And it's designed for sinners. Because Jesus was the one who shed his blood. And so the hardness of heart is moral because the gospel is designed precisely for lost sinners, which is what we are, and we can't understand it. The more they understand it, the more angry they get. That's why the secret church doesn't preach the gospel, because no one seeks after God. They'd have a real small church. <laughs> but if you preach the gospel, they'll get angry or they'll be converted. Right. Amen. I'm sorry, Eric. Yeah, and actually, just to, to kind of support what, what we're talking about here, Deuteronomy 30, where we were just reading, verse 11, it's pretty clear. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. Yes. I, I don't know how much more clear that can be. Very good. Very good, Eric. Nor Thank is it you. out of reach, okay? So yes. It's unless not God's wrong somehow. I don't know. Very good. Excellent. Thank you, Eric. That's very good. Um, you know, as Bob was talking about, it's very important, too. Bob mentioned something. The gospel was given publicly. This isn't a mystery religion. It's open to all. You don't have to have some secret key or handshake to get in. It was open to all. Remember, didn't uh, Paul say before Agrippa, these things did not happen in a corner? Amen. And it reminded me, as Bob said, that in Romans 3, remember it says that Christ was put forward. Here it is. It's 325. It says that God displayed him publicly as a propitiation. So think about it. When the Israelites were to sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, the lamb that would, or excuse me, it's the goats that would remove their sin, it was behind the veil. And who was the only one that could go behind the veil? The high priest. It was only once a year. No one else could see it. But when Jesus Christ was crucified, it was open for all to see. This isn't a secret religion. It's, it's not hard. It's open for all. It's public and it's knowable. And the fact of the matter is it's people, it's not that they can't understand the gospel, it's that they don't like it. 
Now, let me give you a text that proves moral inability, that that's the real issue. Turn your Bibles to John 3, 17 through 19. John 3, 17 through 19. Now, of course, we all know John 3, 16. It's the official verse of the NFL. You always see it in the stands, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But notice it continues on. John 3, 17 through 19. Jesus says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now stop there for a moment. Remember, begotten means monogenes, the unique one. Not that he came into existence, but he's the unique one. Okay, verse 19, he says, This is the judgment that the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That's the real issue, isn't it? It's a moral issue. Just as Bob said, when Stephen was preaching the gospel in Acts 7, it was clear, and the clearer it was, the more angry they got. Why? They understood what he was saying. They didn't like it. And we see in John chapter 8, uh, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, that in fact all of humanity, left of their own devices, are slaves to sin. Slaves to it. They love it. And so when we look at inability, yes, it's, we're separated from God because of our sin, but it's a moral inability. Now, I'm not saying that you and I reason as well as we should have or, sh- or could before the fall. Certainly, the fall has affected even our mental faculty and the way we reason. But the rejection of the gospel is a moral one. And so when people say, well, it's not fair that God overlooks some and enables others to believe, the ones he's overlooking, the reprobate, they understand what God is saying. It's not as if God has asked them to do the impossible. They understand the gospel they don't like the gospel. So all of a sudden, this doctrine of election doesn't look so mean, does it? But it is, in fact, the only way that any can be saved, that God would sovereignly choose to regenerate a dead heart and enable it to believe. Again, the analogy I like is, if you think about all of humanity on the Titanic, it's not that you and I are flailing in the ocean, drowning, And if the lifeboat of Jesus comes by and we'll simply reach up and grab it, he'll save us. The true imagery that's revealed in the Bible is that we've all drowned. And the lifeboat comes by and God mercifully plucks some out of the water into his lifeboat and he breathes the breath of life into us so that we can believe the gospel. I think that's the truth that we see revealed in Scripture. Yes, Scott. What do you say to one who says, well, it's not fair if God condemns someone who's never heard the truth. Yeah, very good question. Um, Last week, Scott, I don't know if you were here last week, R.C. Sproul um, addresses that very well, and I'll tell the story again because perhaps we have some new people here. One of my favorite stories I'd ever told is someone asked him that very question, and the way they usually guise it is there's some poor person in Africa who's never heard the gospel. So the question put to R.C. Sproul was, 
God would never send some poor, innocent aborigine to hell who's never heard the gospel. And R.C. Sproul masterfully said, well, no, God would never be in the business of sending an innocent aborigine to hell. The only question we have to ask is, are there any such things as innocent aborigines? The point is this. Even people who have not heard the gospel are not innocent. And the passage to appeal to is Romans 1.20. That through, in Romans 1.20, what may be known about God, namely his divine attributes and his eternal power, were made visible so that all are without excuse. Last week, who did the reading? It was Psalm, uh, Psalm 19. Somebody in here, I thought, did the reading. But remember, day after day, the heavens pour forth speech. They pour forth knowledge. The general revelation gives people enough knowledge that they know some true things of God. But instead of saying, I want to know that God and responding to the what little revelation they have, Romans 1, Paul says, no, instead they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. They become idolaters. So general revelation makes them without excuse. General revelation, as we often say, gives you enough light to hang yourself. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's why it's so important that the gospel is preached because that's what God uses to regenerate. Yes, Jessica. Well, and the flip side of that too, if it were actually true that if somebody hadn't heard the gospel, they were exempt from all of this, the worst possible thing we could ever do would be to share the gospel because then we would be condemning them with the gospel. Well said. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Amen. That's a very good, yeah. And another thing, uh, after 45 years of ministry, I think I know what trips up Christians. And that is, they, is mental acts and feelings that overwhelm just so cold, sober truth. Because after we become Christian and we know Christ and the joy of the Holy Spirit and the joy of Christian fellowship in the work of God in our lives, it's so wonderful in the assurance of, of eternal life. We assume everybody would want this. Yes. Okay? And so we think if everybody doesn't have what we have, there's unfairness. But, if you, but you're confusing how you think and feel now with how you thought and f- felt when you were unregenerate. Good okay? point. And the fact is that when you don't know Christ... You're not longing to be like the evangelical Christians. Because <laughs> you think they're nuts. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and if you thought, well, you know, something's going to happen, and after it happens, you're going to be in church every Sunday singing hymns with people that don't look like you, and it's going to be the way you're going to live your life. <clears throat> you would say, get out of here. I don't want it. That's ridiculous. Yes. So we're assuming everybody wants what we have. Yeah. It's not fair if they don't have it. But in reality, they don't want it anyhow. Right. And they're very glad they don't have it. Yeah, amen. That's a well, well said. Yes. Excellent point, Bob. Yeah. You know, now what I want to do in just the remaining time that we have is I want to deal with a couple of texts that show 
one last time, and I'll do it actually a few other times, the inability of man. Let's look at uh, Romans 3.10, 3.11 to accent this point. Human beings are unable. Why? We're spiritually dead in Adam. Notice what Paul says of all humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, left of their own devices. Citing from Psalm 14, he says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Notice in red where it says there is none who seeks for God. This is one of the boogaboos with Arminians. Arminians will look at texts, for example, in Psalm 9:10, it talks about those who seek for God. And they will say, well, wait a minute. On the one hand, it says none who seek after, none seek after God. But in other texts, it says that people seek after God. Well, what they do to get around Romans 3.11 is they say, well, it certainly doesn't really mean quite that. It just means, in fact, I just heard a debate where an Arminian said, this is primarily reflecting the Jews who were hardened at that time. It doesn't mean all people. No, it does mean all people. That's the point that Paul's driving in Romans 2 through 3 is that all are condemned. Whether it's Jews without the law, excuse me, with the law or Gentiles without the law, all are condemned. It's none who seek after him. So let's think about it for a moment. When you and I come to an apparent contradiction in scripture, we have to reconcile it. There are no contradictions in scripture. What is a contradiction? It is an absurdity. An absurdity would be say, hey, draw me a round square. A round square, by definition, if it's round, it can't be square. That's an absurdity. And God does not speak in an absurd way. So here's how we reconcile this idea in Romans 3.11 that none seek after God. And in other passages, God says, for those who will seek me, I will be their rewarder. He rewards those who seek after him. So how do we reconcile that? Well, the way to reconcile it is to realize that those who end up seeking him are those who have been regenerated by his spirit. That yes, there will be those who end up seeking him, but it's because God first sought them. Jesus himself said in Luke 19.10, I came to what? Seek and save that which is lost. The Greek verb zeteo, Jesus is the seeker. That's why he says in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And what's true of the apostles is true of every one of us. Truth be told, we were dead sinners on the ocean and floating as we were, drowned in our sins, we were already dead. He came in the lifeboat and was seeking after us. So yes, there are human beings who end up seeking God, but it's because he first sought them and deposited his spirit within them. That's how you reconcile it. So yes, there are no contradictions in scripture. So with that, I'll leave off there. Uh, We have any comments or questions? I guess we have a, a couple of minutes. Anybody got any thoughts? Well, good. Well, maybe I'll give you one more verse then. One for the road, as the old saying goes. Romans 8, 8. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot. Now, think of two spheres again. What does it mean to be in the flesh? In the flesh is every human being born in Adam. If you're born once into this world, you're in the flesh. 
if you're born again, as Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, you're no longer in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. Two different spheres. So if you're in the spirit, you've been brought to Jesus Christ by the power of the spirit. All right, so two spheres. So if you're in the flesh, you're left unaided by God. And what is true of you is that you cannot please God. Now remember from Hebrews eleven six, again, how is it that anyone can please God? It's by faith. Without faith, no one can please God. Paul is making it very clear that those who are unaided by the Spirit cannot come to faith. That's the conundrum that people are in. Unaided by the Spirit, they cannot believe. Now, next time, um, by the way, the underlying portion there, those who are in the flesh, that's what I was referring to. Next time, you and I are going to be talking about John 6.44. And so if you want to read that passage, and in fact, read all of John 6. That'll give you some good background to the discussion here in John 6.44. But we'll spend a lot of time on this text, and I'll be showing you the profundity of it, I hope, in a manner in which you will say, yes, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And you're going to see that this drawing is not a wooing or an enticing. In fact, the verb for drawing, el kuo, I'll give you a little hint, is used for drawing a sword. Now, how many woo a sword out of the scabbard? Come here, sword. Come out of here. No, you have to draw it. You have to drag it out. In the same way, sinners have to be drawn into the kingdom because they cannot believe in and of themselves. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing the truth about our nature so that you get all the glory and salvation, that salvation is first and foremost from you and that you, at the end, are the only Savior. I do pray, Lord, that you would put that deep in our hearts so that we would be able to be those who remember the greatness of our salvation, that would give you praise, that we would marvel at the fact that we became your elect all through your gracious, merciful power. I pray for Bob as he teaches us today the word of God, that you'd give us ears to hear, that we would be those who acquiesce to the scriptures and live them out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.